From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, President Obama said this about the vast network of tax shelters and money laundering operations exposed by a massive leak called the Panama Papers. Global tax avoidance generally is a huge problem. But... A lot of this stuff is legal, not illegal. Legal, but still embarrassing and potentially career-ending if you're a politician. Among those named in the leak was British Prime Minister David Cameron, who admitted, finally, that he reaped profits from shares his father stashed in Panamanian tax shelters, but he sold all that years ago. Rules have changed and cultures change, and as I say, I welcome that. I want to be as clear as I can about the past, about the present, about the future, because frankly, I don't have anything to hide. Of course, you know, Iceland's Prime Minister Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson resigned after he was found to have squirreled away cash during his country's banking collapse. Plucky little Iceland. Don't hold your breath waiting for any of the other named politicians, 143 and counting, to step down. I mean, Syria's Bashar al-Assad, the king of Saudi Arabia, the presidents of Argentina and Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, also on the walk of no shame, Jackie Chan, FIFA, and Simon Cowell. By the way, did you know American Idol ended this week? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It was a very big leak. In fact, the biggest ever. More than 11 million documents from a Panama-based law firm called Mossack Fonseca, leaked over time by a Mr. John Doe to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Overwhelmed, the paper sought help from the Washington-based International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which enlisted almost 400 journalists from some 100 news outlets worldwide. Does this augur the future of journalism? Bigger and bigger leaks? Larger and larger consortiums? Maybe. It's very complex and technically challenging work because though they're called documents, it doesn't necessarily follow that you can read them. As Gerard Ryle, the head of the Consortium of Investigative Journalists, explains. They came in different formats. You had spreadsheets, you had passport details, PDFs. In fact, a lot of the documents you couldn't even read. And so we had to spend a lot of time using optical character recognition to scan them into a searchable database. And then we started bringing in more reporters because we could see at that point that there are even more countries involved. Now, even with 400 reporters, 11 million documents is a lot of material to sort through, which means there had to be a more systematic way of going about finding relevant names of individuals and companies. You actually built a proprietary search engine? Yes, we just used open software literally piped all the material down over the internet into the newsrooms using encrypted technology, and then they could log into the search system and search for names themselves. Parallel to that, we also asked the reporters when they went into their physical newsrooms every day to also log on to the ICIJ and what we called the IHOP, which was our virtual newsroom. It was built a bit like Facebook, where as soon as they found something interesting in the documents, they immediately posted what they found someone was interested, for instance, in drug dealers or diamond dealers or, or say, a country like Iceland or Brazil, they could form their own groups and then have chats and searches and links to documents and other findings in there. And also in that virtual newsroom, 
if there was a you know a court case we needed to find or a court document, you could go to the country, get the document, and also upload it and link it. And so you had this amazing almost library of information that was building as the collaboration continued. So did the reporters from any given country just go through the search engine and type in the names of their usual suspects, their politicians and tycoons? Well, I think every reporter started doing that, of course. But over time, you realized that you weren't getting the hits you wanted. So then you learned that you needed to basically go where the documents brought you and you needed to search in different ways. I remember at one point we had a big breakthrough when one of the Swiss reporters um, found a way of searching passport details. So you could literally type in a code and every American passport would pop up. So, of course, if you were an American reporter looking at this, that was a great place to start. And from there, you went outside the documents when you found interesting people, people that had been convicted of crimes or in some countries there were politicians. But the other big advantage of working in this way is that we had what I would call native reporters looking at native names. So, The Brazilians were looking at the Brazilian names. The Icelandic reporter was looking at the Icelandic names. And so you're very quickly able to establish if someone was a politician or a public official, someone of public interest. Of course, the whole point of going to offshore locations to create shell corporations is to avoid scrutiny. So, uh, you know, it's not as though you, you type in Vladimir Putin and you hit all of his accounts in... Panama and elsewhere, you discovered in his case that the dealings centered on not the chairman of Gazprom and not any other obvious oligarch, but but of course a classical cellist. Well, this is a man called Sergei Roldugan. He has gone on the record to the New York Times in the past as saying that he is nothing but a cellist. He's not a businessman. But in these documents, we found this cellist was actually the owner of a number of offshore companies. And those offshore companies were getting very large bank loans from a state bank in Russia. I mean, some of these loans were basically being assigned to companies for the princely sum of one dollar. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And so we were able to suddenly find things that were secret until then. And of course, in the virtual newsroom, a group popped up called Russia and Putin, and all these eyes started looking at the documents and more and more things fell out. A lot of big names, like Putin, like Assad. Is this the cream? Or as you sift through more and more mountains of data, can we expect other high-profile money launderers and thieves and tax cheats to emerge? I would hope that after a year of looking at this with hundreds of journalists around the world, that we have actually found at least most of the cream. But I do think there'll be fallout. We have more stories planned. And of course, all of the media partners we worked with, which were more than 100, they've got their own schedules as well. So we think the stories will continue to run out for weeks. And eventually, of course, we hope to publish more of the documents, which should trigger more stories. We're already seeing new stories emerge that we weren't aware of that were in there. Since you're not going to release the documents to the public en masse, do these news organizations have an ongoing commitment to stay on this? I think you'll find that the news organizations that we got involved will stay with the story. I mean, I think it's important to distinguish, though, between just publishing everything and publishing what is in the public interest. One of the things we're trying to do as journalists is actually reclaim that ground that I think was lost to organizations like WikiLeaks 
and no way criticizing WikiLeaks or what they do. It's just that I don't necessarily think that journalists should be doing that. I think journalists should apply journalistic ethics and journalistic practice to these kind of documents, which is why you're seeing so many politicians, by the way, in the first few days, because there's no argument that these people are of public interest. They're elected to office. And what we have found is that some of them didn't tell the public that they had these holdings offshore. Within five minutes or so of you releasing the first stories on the Panama Papers, a counter-narrative emerged from uh, skeptics and apologists wondering why this is focused on Putin and Mugabe and not on Americans, that very few U.S. individuals or entities have been named in the early reporting and that therefore it's clear that uh, ICIJ is some sort of CIA operation aimed to embarrass America's adversaries. Are you a front for the CIA? I would reject that entirely. I think it's quite laughable. In fact, we just published a story showing how the CIA actually uses the offshore world. What happened when we sent the questions to Vladimir Putin's associates about a week before publication? We did that because we had genuine reason to believe that the reporters in Russia we were working with were in potential danger if we went too soon. You know, in other cases, for instance, in Iceland, we had gone three weeks prior to publication to get comment. But as soon as the questions landed in Russia, the Kremlin called a press conference and denounced us. And at that point, Vladimir Putin probably thought this whole thing was just about him. But then two days later, the TASS news agency were perfectly happy to also report that we had named the president of Ukraine, you know, that we have named Ian Cameron, the dad of David Cameron, the British prime minister. You asked about American names. Well, we actually worked with the McClatchy Group here in the US and the Miami Herald has been digging into the American names and publishing the American names. The fact is simply this, that there were no politicians or public officials in the data from America. But I can tell you that there were some interesting celebrities in there and eventually we will release those names. But... From an editorial point of view, I wasn't that interested in celebrities when I first looked at this. I wanted this to be more than just titillation. Yes, we could have gone down that path. We chose not to, but eventually all of the American names will come out. Is the sheer volume of this evidence that Mossack Fonseca in Panama kind of has cornered the market on shell entities or that it's just the tip of a much larger iceberg? There are about 800 other firms out there doing exactly the same thing. Mossack Fonseca is one of the top five registers of offshore companies in the world. But they're unusual in that they're in so many different jurisdictions. They're here in the US. They had two offices here. And China, they're in New Zealand, they're in England, they're everywhere. Being set up on behalf of major banks and institutions and accountancy firms and law firms around the world, including many here in the US. And most of it, however sleazy, is nonetheless legal. Yes, I mean, it is not illegal by itself to go and register an offshore company. But what we were looking at was a lot of things that you would have to say are very questionable. When we went to Mossack Fonseca for comment, they responded that, in fact, a lot of the people we were looking at, a lot of the end users of these companies, were not, in fact, their clients. They argued that, in fact, the clients 
was the bank. And if the bank came to them looking to set up an offshore account for one of the bank customers, then they took no responsibility for finding out who that person really was. So that's why we found in the data things like if you typed in the word Ponyang into our search system, you found a company that was registered in the capital of North Korea. Now, that would have normally send alarm bells out, you would have thought. And sure enough, when you go outside the data and you look at the international sanctions list, there was that company. It was actually the North Korean state, which seems incredible. Have you or has Suddeutsche Zeitung heard from other whistleblowers as a direct result of the Panama Papers? I'm not sure whether they've been contacted by anybody new, but you do touch on a very good point. I do think that technology today really allows this kind of radical transparency because whoever gathered this material did so in a way that wouldn't have been possible five or ten years ago. So, you know, what we're in the era of now is the era of huge leaks. I mean, it's not that difficult to gather this much material now. We had every email and every document going back to 1977 in this leak. This is the largest leak in history, but in probably two or three years' time, we'll be talking about something twice or three times the size. Yeah, Gerard, I have some good news for you, and I have some bad news for you. The good news is that, as you expected, the Panama Papers have captured the attention of the media throughout the world, except two places. One is China, which has this great firewall. The other is the U.S., To what can you possibly attribute the crickets that met your big scoops? I mean, I was told this when I first came to America and I didn't believe it. That if you're not working with the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or 60 Minutes or NPR, then it doesn't matter. But as the reporting has come out, we're now finding our way onto the front pages. And in fact, I think the public editor at the New York Times had to write a column defending why the New York Times didn't run this on the front page on day one. They put it on page three. But I I was quite heartened to see that newspapers like USA Today just thought, okay, this is a great news story. Let's, Let's remake the front page and go for it. Did you go to them and did they send you packing? We did not go to the New York Times with this project, but we have approached them in the past to collaborate and it hasn't worked out. Polite way of putting it. You know, my theory on that is that Really, the biggest news outlets in America still think that they're big enough on their own, whereas the rest of the world has now realized that the financial models that have sustained our journalism in the past are actually broken. And they're more willing to look at new ways of doing things, whereas the big American outlets, they think that they don't need to collaborate. And I do think that they just haven't caught up with the real world yet, and eventually they will. Gerard, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Gerard Ryle is the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which coordinated the Panama Papers. Coming up, we take a trip with the Panama Papers around the world and down the canal. This is On the Media. Hey, boo-boos. It's Phoebe Robinson. And I'm Jessica Williams. We're the hosts of WNYC Studios' newest podcast, Two Dope Queens. And we get real. Well, we can't say how real we get. For all we don't even have a kid in the room. Yeah, we don't want to make it weird and upset anyone. 
But you really should listen to our weekly podcast. We've got New York's best stand-up and storytellers, too. Come on over to Two Dope Queens wherever you get your podcasts or listen on the WNYC app. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. The Panama Papers, the result of more than a year of secret labor shared among hundreds of journalists in dozens of countries, is an unprecedented feat of journalistic coordination. It's also a project that unfolded very differently depending on where in the world those journalists were located. So we called up a few of them. Apologies in advance for the bad phone lines. For some, the effort was bedeviled by the repressive regimes under which they live. In Tunisia, the online magazine Inkifada exposed the involvement of Mohsen Marzouk, co-founder of the current president's political party in offshore holdings. But soon after those reports were published, hackers infiltrated Inkifada's website and changed the details, including the name Marzouk to Marzouki, Marzouki being Tunisia's former president and an opponent of the current administration. Eventually, the newspaper had to shut down its website. And we had really violent answers from uh, the public who is asking where are the articles. That's Sanas Bouai, an Inkifada reporter. Is, is there someone trying to buy your silence? Are you making some deals with some people to not put the names out? The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and a South African-based news network have coordinated with Inkifada to ensure its reports can be read somewhere. Meanwhile, Reporters Without Borders has condemned the attacks on Inkifada's website. And having those organizations standing next to us and saying that they're supporting us, that's really important because it sends the public a special message. It also sends a message to journalists in Tunisia that their profession still matters. Something that really touched me in this whole process is that today we are speaking about journalism who is collapsing and uh, no more professionalism and everyone running after the buzz. Well, actually, we manage almost 400 journalists all around the world. We don't know each other and we manage to keep it secret, and we managed to get into the deadline and to make it happen. There are still journalists who care about the way they do their work, who are really professional, who collaborate together. So that was amazing to see that. Egyptian journalist Hisham Alam was pressured by government officials not to publish his stories from the leak, but he went ahead, revealing that former President Hosni Mubarak's son was involved in a secret offshore company registered in the British Virgin Islands. Hisham said that the global network of journalists working on the Panama Papers served as a shield against Egyptian censors. Because in case if you are threatened or for some reason get hurt, your colleagues, are, they're going to continue your work and they will publish your stories. At least you're not standing alone. Your story is going to be shown globally. Everybody will read it, everybody will see it, and the impact cannot be seized inside your country. Here, we use that authority. They are just calm down situation. Okay, we will investigate it, we will check the documents, and after a couple of weeks, everybody's forgetting the story. Now, nobody can forget it or ignore it. Argentine journalists at the paper La Nación weren't up against the censors, 
But under the terms of the consortium, for nearly four months, they were unable to publish what could be one of the biggest scoops in the paper's history. On December 8th, just two days before President-elect Mauricio Macri took office, they learned that he was listed as a director of an offshore company in the Bahamas. Macri had been campaigning on an anti-corruption platform, vowing to clean up the mess he said was left by the previous president. La Nation investigations editor Hugo Alcanadaman recalled when one of his reporters, Ivan Ruiz, told him the news. The source of this information was providing more documents every week. So it was coming like in waves, you know? So every two weeks you should be rechecking all the names that you had already searched on the database again. And on December the 8th, just two days before he took office, he sent us an email and said, hey guys, I found President Macri. And the first thing I thought it was, this is going to be great. Not only couldn't they publish, Hugo and his team had to share their findings with nearly 400 other journalists and hope they wouldn't break the story first. If you believe in miracles, that was a miracle. Uh, Because you had to keep 400 journalists with their mouths shut. that's, That's unbelievable. But it happened. It was wonderful. What's also wonderful, he says, is that the Panama Papers gave reporters the chance to confirm what they'd already suspected, that the rich and powerful were having a party at the expense of their constituents. This is like when kids are you know, playing in a dark room, and you suddenly enter that room, turn on the lights, and you end up you know, finding that a guy is jumping over a bed, another one is, you know, on a window, and the other one is throwing a shoe, and you say, what, what's going on here, you know? It was like that, that we were able to expose, to turn on the light in Panama. Not only in Panama, but around the world. In Kenya, though, reporters and the public had a more tempered response to the revelations. Journalist Jacqueline Kubania found that one of her country's highest judges was linked to 11 shell companies, despite Kenyan constitutional law stating that it's illegal for judges, being state officers, to open offshore bank accounts. But, she said, when you live in Kenya... You get used to the fact that corruption is a fact of life. It's something that we struggle with maybe more often than people in other places. So I would not actually be surprised if a bigger story broke next week that will totally eclipse what we are doing with the Panama Papers right now. In Ukraine, the revelation that the nominally anti-corruption president Petro Poroshenko may have used an offshore firm to stash assets and avoid taxes has been met with a surprising amount of debate. It's really a top story of the week. It discussed everywhere, you know, in the business circles, by the media. I hear the people, you know, really somewhere discussing. Natalia Gumenyuk is the co-founder of the Ukrainian news site Hromadsky TV, one of the independent media outlets that have sprung up in the two years since Poroshenko was elected. While what Poroshenko did may or may not have been illegal, Gormanyuk believes that the fact that there is even a discussion shows that Ukraine has entered a new era. 
the last year before 2013, it was authoritarian state with media controlled by the uh, big business close to power and by the government with a censorship when the government is more or less running and owning all the assets of the country. The previous president, they were known for stealing a hundred millions of dollars. And those kind of uh, investigations, uh, they were usually, you know, an issue for the professionals, for independent media, maybe for some of the political opposition. But you wouldn't have discussed that, you know, in public would be really surprised because that was an issue. But now in our case, it's the issue for every talk show. That is a huge change that for me, Obviously, is a sign that demand for the public servants, for the presidents, are not just very high, but more or less normal, as it should be in the society where people care about the rule of law and wants their politician to be accountable, which definitely was not ever the case. Amidst all the clamor around the world prompted by the Panama Papers, there was one country that seemed to get fewer mentions than any other. Why haven't we seen any big American names? The American people aren't talking a great deal about the Panama Papers, in part because no Americans have been named yet. Any high-profile Americans in these documents? Not yet, not yet. That, that has been significant. But there's no denying that the U.S. had a hand in putting Panama on the path to banking infamy. You might say that it took an express route through the Panama Canal. The story begins in the 1880s with a group of French investors who were bent on digging a canal in the then Colombian province of Panama. It creates a disaster, mainly because it fails to use the nearby railway to remove the dirt, so that when the rain comes, the piles host deadly plagues of insects. Hundreds die in mudslides, thousands by disease. Despite 11 miles dug and heavy investment in machinery, the project's abandoned. The company bankrupt. What's worse, its contract stipulates that any assets left on site revert back to Colombia in 1904. Enter Teddy Roosevelt in 1902, mulling the construction of a U.S. canal in either Colombia or Nicaragua. Now those French shareholders, with their American partners, see a chance to secure a belated payday. I'll let Noel Maurer, co-author of the book The Big Ditch, How America Took, Built, Ran, and Ultimately Gave Away the Panama Canal, pick up the story from there. So the first thing they do is they find this guy named William Cromwell, basically a Republican fixer from Brooklyn. They give him the equivalent of $1.3 million in today's money to essentially connect them with American politicians to ensure that the congressional vote to build the canal goes through Panama and that they will get paid. The congressional vote goes through, but the Colombians don't want to make a deal before 1904 because they know that after 1904, that $40 million is going to go to them instead of these shareholders in this bankrupt company sitting in France and the United States. Mm -hmm. So they stonewall. Then a French lawyer cuts a $100,000 check to a bunch of Panamanians and tells them to declare independence on a certain date. <laughs> he then meets with the Secretary of State of the United States and the president. This is a French lawyer. I want to make this clear. Working for a private company. And informs them that the revolution is going to happen on this date. Please have warships available. <laughs> the warships block the Colombians' ability to repress the rebellion. The United States recognizes Panama. 
the French lawyer is appointed the foreign minister of Panama to negotiate a treaty with the United States to build a canal, and that treaty has uh, about all the advantages to Panama that you would expect from a treaty written under those circumstances. Panama got the profoundly short end of the stick? So the treaty cleaves Panama in half. It gives the United States full sovereign control over a 10-mile zone around the canal. When the Panamanians want to reject it, the Secretary of State informs them that it is only the Marines and the U.S. Navy protecting them from a Colombian reinvasion, and they might want to reconsider. And I know that there is a route from these kinds of treaties to the tax havens that we have today, but it starts with shipping, right? Yes. So it starts with a flag of convenience. So this is basically where an American ship will reflag itself as Panamanian, even though it is still owned by Americans. They avoid the unions because they're not American. They get out of minimum wage regulations. They can hire foreigners. You can pay them in air. You can avoid safety regulations and inspections. It's a great deal. And the United States goes along with this because the U.S. knows Panama is getting no benefit from the canal. And anything that they can do to help prop up the Panamanian government is going to avoid potential problems with the canal. So the U.S. government is perfectly happy to look the other way. So uh, the Panamanian government starts to promote itself as a global tax haven in the 1950s. And obviously this is going to help out the U.S. because Panama's been a U.S. dollar economy since the construction of the canal. Did American banks and the U.S. government actively create the conditions for Panama to become this tax haven money laundering utopia? Or did it just turn a blind eye? It turned a blind eye. You got to give the credit to a guy named Nicolas Barletta, who actually came up with the idea. So he writes the first bank secrecy laws in 1959. He has the idea that we've been using the dollar forever. We have an incredibly stable banking system, but anyone can put money in there in absolute secrecy and no one ever will know who they are. The banking sector just explodes. And the U.S. uh, turns a blind eye for the same reason it turned a blind eye to shipping, because it wants to buy off Panamanian public opinion, and this is favorable to Panama. And also, the canal itself was a symbol of U.S. power. The canal is declining in economic importance and strategic importance after World War II. It's actually becoming a money loser for the American government. Every American government from Harry Truman on actually wants to get rid of the thing. But there's this big chunk of American public opinion that views the canal as a symbol of American prestige that we stole fair and square. And I am quoting a U.S. (laughs) senator on that. And they don't want to give it back. In 1964, there are these horrible riots where a number of people are killed. There's shooting between Panamanian snipers and American soldiers. And it's becoming politically contentious. And at that point, the U.S. government really wants to do everything it can to cool the situation down in Panama because nobody wants an armed confrontation. So let's jump ahead to uh, 1983. Manuel Noriega, the commander of the Panamanian Defense Forces, takes power, and he basically sanctions money laundering. He's even partnering with the Medellin drug cartel. The U.S. government is still turning a blind eye to Panamanian banks' more illicit dealings. And it's had Noriega on the payroll for years. So what was the CIA's interest in him that they could look past the Medellin? The Sandinistas in Nicaragua were running spy missions illegally at a Harvard Air Force base. 
We're funneling huge amounts of money to the Contras through Panama, and Noriega is actually even conducting covert operations inside Nicaragua on behalf of the United States. Panamanian agents actually explode bombs in the Sandinistas' military headquarters in 1985. Given that the Reagan administration had this thing about the Sandinistas, it's incredibly useful to have Manuel Noriega on board helping us out and providing us deniability in the covert war against the Nicaraguan government. So why did the U.S. turn against Noriega in 1989 and invade Panama? Because Noriega was an idiot. (laughs) That hardly disqualifies the U.S. from supporting anybody. I agree. But Noriega almost deliberately goes out of his way to make it impossible for the United States to continue supporting him. So first, he kills a political opponent, a guy named Hugo Spadafora, in 1985 by decapitating him while he's still alive. Not realizing that Hugo Spadafora has connections with right-wing American politicians like Jesse Helms, who are kind of a little angry that he was decapitated. When you're losing Senator Jesse Helms, you got a political problem. Then, when uh, another military leader in his government, a guy named Roberto Diaz, pronounces against him, he then immediately arrests Roberto Diaz. And the thing about Roberto Diaz is he has connections with the Sandinistas, and the U.S. considers him a communist sympathizer. But once he's out of the way, the U.S. could now take out Noriega without worrying that that is going to put a Sandinista communist sympathizer in command of Panama. So he cleared away one of the U.S. obstacles. (laughs) It's mind-bogglingly moronic. I mean, Noriega in 1990 basically annulled an election. Guillermo Andara won that election. Once Noriega's out of office, the Andara administration comes back and takes over. Noriega did one good thing for Panama. He really destroyed the neo-feudalistic political machines that had controlled the country previously. Afterwards, you do have fairly competitive, if rather corrupt, democratic politics in Panama. And Panama does start to look more like a normal democracy. And offshore banking is a great thing. It's a major source of employment. It's a major source of tax revenue. The country does try and move away from the sleazier parts of the business. One of the interesting things about the revelations that are coming out now is, for example, how few connections there are with Mexican drug cartels. And eh, they'll try, but not too hard to make sure that sanctions the U.S. really cares about aren't busted. Why then did they provide a tax haven for North Korean money? I doubt that Panamanian officials knew about that directly. Why aren't there more U.S. names in that damning list in the Panamanian papers? Panama and the United States are joined at the hip. These are two countries that have had a long association with each other. The potential political blowback from aiding or abetting activities by Americans is quite large. At the same time, Panama is not the only country where you can set up an offshore account to launder money. We've got the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Switzerland, and Delaware. If you're an American, you've got a lot of options where you're far less likely to come to the attention of authorities either in that country or of the United States. But the current Panama banking system exists because of the first Roosevelt administration's involvement and later administrations trying to get out of a Panama political problem by turning a blind eye. So we created (laughs) Panama in a sleazy deal and thus Panama's deal-making is sleazy? 
The deal we gave the Panamanians gave them no other way to benefit from the fact that they had this great geographical position other than by engaging in the flag of convenience, bank secrecy, and the Cologne Free Zone, an area of free imports and exports, because it was not until the 1970s that the country was able to actually benefit directly from the presence of the Panama Canal on its soil. Ah, Why? You just said it's a big money loser. No, not anymore. One of the great miracles has been when the canal was handed over to Panama, how much better the Panamanians have run the thing than the Americans did. Uh Uh-huh. They start installing high-powered halogen lights at night, having traffic go one way instead of two ways so ships stop clanking into each other, and firing canal pilots who show up for work drunk. Mm -hmm. These are three things that the United States did not do when we managed the canal. It has turned into an unbelievably profitable investment. It's not anywhere near as important as it was back in the 1930s for world trade, but it's a big moneymaker. It is an island of efficiency and modernity in a country that in many other ways still suffers from very high levels of corruption. I think that the Panamanian government has an interest in cleaning up the banking sector because the sleazy parts of that are no longer as important to Panama as it was in the days before the canal. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Noel Maurer is an associate professor of international affairs and business at George Washington University and co-author of the book The Big Ditch, How America Took, Built, Ran, and Ultimately Gave Away the Panama Canal. We're in the money. Come on, my honey. Coming up, sometimes the real conspiracy is the one staring you in the face. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by The New School, offering master's programs in media studies and media management. You can study full-time or part-time, taking classes on campus in New York City, online, or in a combination of both. Complete your application by May 5th to start your program this fall. Learn more about The New School's master's programs in media studies and media management at newschool.edu mediaNYC. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. The Panama Papers have offered a rare glimpse inside the intricate network of shell companies, aliases, and proxies used by politicians, tycoons, banks, and law firms to obscure wealth from prying eyes. Or, put another way, documentary evidence of actual conspiracies of global elites. For the believers of the sinister power of the 1%, this is Yeti. This is Area 51. This is the Loch Ness Monster, and it's real. Uh Uh-huh, that's just what they want you to think. But if you're to believe the conspiracy theories floated since the Panama Papers dropped, the whole affair is itself a tool of the vast New World Order conspiracy, through which an unseen hand unleashes the corporate media to distract us all from the true machinations. You fool! Jennings Brown reports on conspiracy theories for Vocative, a news site that investigates the deep web. He wrote this week about the main themes guiding the conspiracy narrative around the Panama Papers. Most of these theories revolve around the fact that this comes from an unusually named organization. 
the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Their webpage lists all their funders, which includes the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Endowment, Rockefeller Family Fund, and the Open Society Foundations, founded by George Soros, who is a you know, major progressive political donor to conspiracy theorists you know, who often tie a lot of these organizations to the Illuminati and Bohemian Grove and a lot of other secret societies. I mean, this is... Let me stop you there, Jennings. I want to play you a piece of tape an example of what you are describing. Mm -hmm. This is a guy named James Corbett, described as a, quote, popular conspiracy theory-touting fringe journalist. And he himself is looking at the uh, ICIJ's website. Oh, Open Society Foundation. Hmm, where have I heard of that before? Oh, the Ford Foundation. It just so happens that their targets, the the people that they've found the, the goods on, are either directly in the crosshairs of the State Department or people that are really just collateral damage or people that they might just want to hold something over. The king of Saudi Arabia, for instance. The funders that he's describing, it's not Henry Ford's ghost who's <laughs> running the Ford Foundation. It is a foundation that has underwritten some of the most important do-gooder projects for many decades. Right. And this is something I experienced when I was uh, working at Popular Mechanics under Hearst Media. We did a book that investigated all of the 9-11 conspiracy theorists and and debunked every one of them. But for years later, anytime any editor appeared on a radio show, these people would call in and think that because we had ties to William Randolph Hearst, who no doubt was in some sort of secret society, we must have been playing into this massive government cover-up behind 9-11. They look for every single tiny angle, especially these ties to some of the early millionaires who built America. It's just fascinating that they think that there's still a strong connection to what those people did. There's always a trump card to be played that explains everything. This is John McAfee, the internet security tycoon. He's on the syndicated radio show InfoWars with conspiracy monger. Alex Jones. We do, in fact, know that the the German media has been, in in fact, highly infiltrated by the CIA. And I'm sure that every single reporter on the uh, International Commission of Investigative Journalists, I can guarantee you, every single one of those are CIA. We should probably observe that there's pretty solid non-conspiratorial reasons why a lot of U.S. names haven't shown up yet. One is that the key word is yet. There's more to follow. A second is that U.S. companies do not have to go to Panama to set up shell firms because they can do it right here in Delaware. But no, no, there are better ones that the smart people have. Just give me an idea of what kind of explanations are being floated for why this is all taking place. So a lot of these theories kind of revolve around the idea that Maybe that there are Americans that are on the list that are uh, being protected, but they're going to use this as as blackmail and that the U.S. Secret Service is going to go after them. That's also a common thread that the CIA, the U.S. Secret Service, are actually at the will of this larger New World Order government that's rising up. It's fascinating just the overall obsession with George Soros. His name is mentioned almost more than Putin or Jackie Chan or any of the people who've been involved in this leak. And libertarianism is such a strong theme in this channel. They don't seem to give the Koch brothers as much heat. So in their world, nothing is coincidental. And if you're not stupid, it's obvious to you. If you're not one of the sheeple. (laughs) 
Each one of these major events or mass shootings or bombings are what they call false flags, staged events that are falling into this master plan that will help the new world order rise up. I found one Redditor who was saying, quote, what blows my mind is that all these things are happening at once. The Vaxxed movie, elections, guys in the desert caught shooting and chanting, Panama Papers, quote, terrorist attacks, shootings, etc. I feel as though we're nearing the end of the story here, guys. It reminds me of end times prophecies, except secularized, but also fetishized. And of course, none of this is new. I mean, you've had conspiracy theorists since the beginning of human civilization. But certainly the internet is a big part of this. I mean, the fact that hundreds of thousands of these skeptics and free thinkers can come together and build this echo chamber of crazy theories with an endless amount of fake news stories. The fact that Alex Jones used to be far more on the fringe than he is now. I mean, now he's sitting down and interviewing the Republican frontrunner. Donald Trump is praising him for his good work. These voices are certainly becoming louder and taken more seriously. And in some way, they're vindicated. I mean, before Snowden came around, a lot of those things we would have thought were just the crazy chance of conspiracy theorists. But what's amazing is that when a consortium of investigative journalists comes together and reveals this amazing story, that's not enough. There must be something more. And they don't want the journalists to do their due diligence and proper journalism. Should we even play this conversation on our show Will that not just be a bellows of oxygen on the wingnuts blaze? That's something I struggle with, you know, when I'm covering a lot of these stories. And also, you know, I don't want to patronize these people. I try not to paint conspiracy theorists as tinfoil hat-wearing crazies. Skepticism is great. Journalists are skeptics. We look for the deeper truths. And I check this subreddit of Conspiracy Daily because... Partially, it's just a fun hobby to see what conspiracy theories are bubbling up. Partially, it's a great tool for journalism. I mean, you have a lot of crowdsourced journalism. And if you're willing to mull through a lot of the junk, sometimes you find little kernels of truth. Uh, maybe, but there's just such a, an absence of intellectual honesty to list the names of these foundations as some sort of obvious smoking gun. How the initiated understand immediately what it means and everybody else are just sheeple. What good comes of that? That's not skepticism. That's fabulism. Certainly. I think it's good that journalists reach out to them and that there's more of a back and forth communication that, you know, we're on your side and we want to expose corruption. And so I think that it's good to cover some of these theories that are popping up and to bridge the gap between conspiracy theorists and journalism because, the more that you do that, the the more that they might be open to kind of realizing that we're on the same team. And maybe it's a lost cause. Maybe I'm doing this for no reason out of just sheer fascination. Or, or obviously, just a foot soldier in the overall master plan. You're on to me. Oh, yeah, when you speak to George, uh, tell him I haven't gotten my paycheck this month. <laughs> Certainly. Jennings, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Bob. Jennings Brown reports on conspiracy theories for Vocative, a site that investigates the deep web. So you just heard about all the bogus conspiracies swirling around the real one in plain sight, that the very rich prevail on our institutions to create loopholes so they can duck the rules the rest of us have to follow. History runneth over with real conspiracies. 
Watergate, for instance, was famously broken by Woodward and Bernstein of the Washington Post. In fact, there's a weird Watergate connection to the Panama Papers. It turns out that the unrecovered proceeds from the notorious 1983 Brinks Matt heist at London's Heathrow Airport, I mean over a hundred million bucks in gold, diamonds, and cash, were laundered through a shell company protected by Mossack Fonseca, which ultimately sought help from another Panamanian firm run by Gilbert Staub, who claimed to have funneled $50,000 to the Watergate burglars. I just mention it because it's the 40th anniversary of the movie All the President's Men. Robert Redford played Bob Woodward. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Markham. Markham. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. That exquisite film also starring Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, is probably the prevailing symbol of all that is fine in American journalism. It's based on the book of the same name by Woodward and Bernstein. The DVD, which was released in 2006 to mark the anniversary, included a commentary which revealed that they intended to write a very different kind of chronicle, one that anatomized the Watergate affair dispassionately and impersonally. But then a call came from an entirely unexpected quarter. Here's Carl Bernstein. Woodward came up to me one day and said he'd gotten a call from Redford. And I said, what the hell about? And he said, well, he he thinks the story is really us. And at the time, we were still reporting the story, and we sure didn't think the story was really us. It was helpful to me to hear him say that. Bob Woodward. And in the end, we wound up writing All the President's Men as a reporting story. He laid the seed for that in that first phone call. Robert Redford. I love the idea of the fact that these guys were doing this hard work from the lowest rung of the professional ladder in their business, and that their work would lead to the takedown of the highest office of the land. So there you have it, the emblem of investigative journalism in the days before big data. For many, perhaps most Americans, the story of Watergate is just as much about the potential power of gumshoe reporters as it is about the corruption of a president. And it's shaped our perceptions, our expectations of journalism, even more than our view of the presidency. It's the icon of the fourth estate. It's the flag that wraps around itself when the arrows fly. And the Betsy Ross, who stitched that flag for future generations of news reporters and news consumers, wasn't the duo known as Woodstein. It was Robert Redford. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Kimmy Regler, Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, and Jesse Brenneman. We had more help from Dasha Lizitsina and David Conrad, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Casey Holford. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. 
Support for On the Media comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.